But early on, secrets really began to start arriving in my mailbox. I was handing them out to strangers in Washington, D.C., and as they arrived, I would scan them and post them on the web. And soon the web and the whole idea went, went viral across the country and around the world. And I've been receiving these postcards nonstop now for over a decade, over a million and more keep coming every day. They follow me to California, uh, yeah. and I hope they never stop. You're listening to Humanize Me, Bart Campolo. Hey everybody, welcome to the show. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad I'm here. I, to be honest, I'm, I'm grateful. I'm grateful for this whole podcasting, but I'm grateful especially to those of you that support the show. And uh, through Patreon. Because we have this Patreon page and, you know, people do it for a buck a month or 20 bucks a month or somebody's like 50 bucks or 100 bucks a month just because they want to see the show go on. And it's an amazing thing and it's making a huge difference. But I had this funny email that I got this week from a friend of mine. And, uh, you know, she's somebody who Marty and I are really close to. We, 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 we became close to her when we were in California and I hadn't heard from her for like six months. And I wrote and I said, hey, you never write, you never call. You never text, you never Skype. Like, what am I, chopped liver? Like, Marty and I want to know what's going on with you. And she wrote back and she said, okay, here's an, here, here's an update. But she said, I'm just wondering, did, did you write because you noticed I changed my Patreon subscription amount from $5 to $1? I'm, if that's the case, I'm really sorry. I've just been broke lately. And it just made me laugh. Because, of course, like, I don't keep track of the actual number on anybody in the first place. Um, but the other thing was, I thought it was just hilarious that here's my friend who's really struggling financially and she drops, she drops her amount from $5, but she doesn't just like cancel her subscription. She drops it to $1 because she wants to stay on the team. And I thought, wow, Carolyn, you totally get it. I mean, the money helps. Sure. And having support has really changed what, what I'm able to do and John's able to do on the podcast, but but what really makes a difference is just knowing that people are behind us. And so a buck means the world to me. And I just loved it. Like, she's like, I want to stay on the team. And honestly, if you like this podcast, I would encourage you to go to Patreon and just become a $1 a month supporter just so that you, when, you, when the show comes on, you can like, hey, I, that's my show. I make that show happen. I'm part of the team. But you know, it's hot here in Cincinnati. I got to tell you. I, I mean, I think it's hot everywhere right now. It's summertime. I mean, certainly it's not hot everywhere because I know we have listeners in New Zealand and Australia and other places in the Southern Hemisphere and it's winter there. But where I am, boy, it's hot. And you know, I like that. It used to bother me. It doesn't anymore. Like my metabolism seems to be changing as I age. I'm just like, my core temperature seems to be cooler now. I just, I used to sweat just at the mention of heat. Now I'm, you know, I'm fine. And, uh, which means I like summer better which put me in mind of this quote that I have been meaning to share. And like on, I don't know if you've noticed it yet. If you haven't gotten it, we're, we started a podcast newsletter and we're going to send it out every week. It's not a long thing. It's just a little quick thing saying, here's who's on the show this week so that you know what to expect or here's what we're talking about. 
And, uh, but when I realized we were going to go to the bother of doing it, I thought like, hey, we should stick a little devotional thought in there. You know, something to kind of get people thinking or, 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 or some kind of positive message that would pop up in people's emails once uh, a week. And so if you're interested in that and you're not already on my email list, you should just go to barcampola.org and send me an email that says, hey, I want to be on the list. I'll stick you on the list and you'll get these little devotional thoughts. This was the, the, the thought that I saw that made me think, yeah, we should do that. It's a Henry James quote. And I love it. Henry James says, summer afternoon, summer afternoon. To me, those have always been the two most beautiful words in the English language. I love that. It's so specific. I, I know just what he means. Like there's something about the phrase summer afternoon that evokes an image for him and he loves it. And of course, it, 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 it raised an interesting question for me that I've asked a few friends lately and I'm going to ask you right now. And that is, what are the most beautiful words in the English language to you? What phrase or what, what, dis, what, what, what words, when you hear them, evoke beauty for you? Um, I was thinking about myself and lately I would have to say it's tandem bike ride because Marty and I have this amazing sort of custom weird semi-recumbent tandem where she rides in the front recumbent, which works for her neck and I ride in the back upright and that way we can talk to each other and both see the road and we just have the best time on this bike. And whenever she says, hey, you want to go for a, a tandem bike ride? Or whenever that, that I hear the word tandem somewhere, it just evokes for me kind of the happiest times I spend in the world um, out there on the bike, combining the two things I love most, which are bike riding and uh, hanging out with my wife. Um, and so I don't, you know, I don't know what it is for you, but I would be curious. And so if in fact you want to send me an email and just say, hey, these are my two words or three words, I would love to know them. But uh, more than that, I, I would love for you to know them um, and, and to focus on them in that Henry James kind of way. Um, speaking of summer and quotes and all of that stuff, I mean, I was thinking about my friend Carolyn because uh, she felt like I, I sort of, she was worried that like I had, I had like found out her secret, that she was cutting back her support. And I hadn't. But you know, we do have secrets, don't we? And that is the segue not so artful segue into this next conversation that I have with Frank Warren, who is the founder and sort of curator of Post Secret, which was a secret to me until just a few weeks ago. But it turns out not to most other people because it is the single most popular non-commercial blog in the world. And Frank started this thing in 2005 on a lark when he was in Washington, D.C., handing out postcards saying to people, hey, decorate this postcard and send me a secret. And it turned into this amazing thing. And, and, and I think you'll love this conversation I have with Frank. But to be honest, I, I enjoyed him so much. We jumped into the conversation so fast that I didn't bother to take any time during the conversation to explain what post secret was and so, or, or what, what kinds of things people sent him. So what I did was I found this thing on the internet. Um, actually, Frank sent it to me, this recording of some people at a, at a live post secret event, sharing the kind of secrets that Frank deals with. And so I'm going to play this, uh, this little tape from that online thing, from the Post Secret Live event, and then my conversation with Frank. And I, I think you're going to like it. He's an amazing person. I mean, I'm just 
thrilled that I even got him on the show. He's like this guy with this huge TED talk. He's like this huge sort of social phenomenon. Um, and I was just so pleased that he was willing to talk with me. And then it was such a conversation. So here's the secrets. Then here's me and Frank. And I'll catch you on the other side with an Ingersoll quote. So when, um, when I was in seventh grade, my parents asked me to go into their closet to retrieve something for them. And not knowing where it was, I decided to go through some of their drawers and look for it. In doing so, I found a drawer full of porn magazines and toys that I still to this day don't really know what they do. So I quickly closed the drawer up, and then every day after middle school, I would rush home and I would open up before my parents got back. This, this continued on for, for weeks and months at a time until I found the homemade video of my parents. And the real tragedy is it took me about four or five minutes to realize what was going on and realize who they were to turn it off. I haven't been in my parents' closet since. I am not sorry that I have found someone that I make really happy. And it's the most amazing connection and I can tell all my secrets too. I am sorry that he's married. I have five different groups of friends, five mobile phone numbers, and they all know me by a different name. And the big problem I have now is that I've met somebody who's so special to me, I want to bring them into all parts of my life. And I don't know what to call myself. A good friend of mine um, committed suicide. And, um... And the day that she did it, she sent everyone um, a text um, <laughs> that said, um, I love you. Um, I told everyone um, that I got that text, too. Um, but I didn't. Church, the movie theaters, four friends' houses, every room of my house, and school, are all places I've masturbated. My flatmate was hit and killed by a car, and the first thing we did as a flat was to go to his room and remove the copious amount of weed that he had there, <laughs> so that his parents would always think of him as their perfect little son. My heart is on the wrong side of my body as a result of a uh, chronic lung disorder. The, the secret is that even though this disease will probably shorten my lifespan significantly, I secretly relish in the fact I will probably not meet another person because there's probably about 100 of us in the entire world who have this disorder and that I am confident in the fact that I am unique in some small way among the 6.8 billion. My biggest motivation in life is not to make my parents proud or even to prove everyone in my past wrong, but to become the person that my dog thinks that I am. All right, so Frank, yeah. there you are in, in, in beautiful Laguna Niguel. Sure thing. In a house where you live with who? Who do you live with in this house? I share it with my wife and a lot of postcards. Yeah, so... so, so if, if, if you were a post-secret regular, the, has the address changed? It has. About two years ago, uh, our daughter graduated. She left the house, and my wife's parents really kind of needed her close by. So we sold our house in Germantown, and now we're living in Southern California. And so your daughter graduated high school? College. 
College. Yeah. Okay. So she's off. Yep. She's up in Northern California right now. That's great. Yeah. You know, I, I, I have two kids and they're both right. They're both in LA area and they were just here this past week visiting with their significant others and the whole thing. And, uh, it, you know, it's kind of had this glorious week, but I'm really aware. I, I remember what it was like the first year that my kid was in a different place than me. Mm. And, and it's a strange thing, isn't it? It is. I can still remember the last summer we spent together when she was in high school and how we took everything off the calendar because we realized how finite that time was going to be and how there'd always be a connection. The relationship was strong, but it would change in ways we really couldn't understand. And as we were talking about earlier, time has a way of passing in ways that we perceive it differently. And taking that summer off was something I think uh, my wife and I will be eternally grateful that we did. Now, it's, it's so interesting that you mentioned your wife because that was one of the first things I was going to ask you about because I, I sort of tried to do a deep dive on you this week and getting ready for this conversation. And, <laughs> Finding and secrets you, on the secret keeper. I know, but you're remarkably opaque out there. Like, like you talk a lot, you talk beautifully about the project, but like I was trying to get like, <laughs> where is he from? Like, wh you know, what, how did he grow up and all this stuff? And there's not like, you're not wildly overexposed out there. Well, I think I part say. of that is on purpose and part of it's by accident. I think if, if you had asked anybody who knew me in high school, they, they wouldn't say I was the person that everybody was close with and wanted to share their secrets with. Um, <laughs> but as I started Post Secret 2, I realized also that I did want to take uh, a secondary role in the project. There's a lot of ways you can put an idea like that together and grow it. And I knew from the start that it would be the postcards and the secrets and the stories that would come first. And as a curator, as somebody who was selecting these secrets and assembling them each week to tell a story, I never wanted the people visiting the website to, to feel like I, I was religious or wasn't religious or was a Republican or wasn't a Republican or whatever. I, I wanted to have the stories on the cards reflect every part of our humanity and be about uh, how our lives are often not contained in, in categories and boxes like we feel in our everyday lives, but they can change and move and transition from one identity to another. So right from the start, even if you look at the Postseeker website, you're not going to see any ads, you're not going to see anything um, extra, no, not, it's, and not it's even, not even blackness. Uh, uh, right. Not even about us or like, you know, like, like here's what post secret is like, you don't really like, it's like you <laughs> it, figure it out. It's a bunch of postcards. Yeah. Try and find my email. It's, it's not easy to do. And, and that's by design because, uh, I really think the power and poignancy of post secret is about these extraordinary stories that people have found the courage to share with themselves and share with me and, and share with the post secret community. And so I, I didn't want to do anything to get in the way. And that, that's always been a, a, a driving value of the project. Okay. So like, let me back you up because here's the weird thing. I'm for a person who has a podcast this is about my only touch with the internet during the week. Like I have email and I have this podcast, but like, I don't have any, like, I don't have a Facebook page. 
I, I don't, I mean, I, th- there's one for the show, but like, mm-hmm. I personally don't, I don't do Instagram. I don't tweet. Yeah. I, don't, I got none of it. And um, I don't say that like sort of proudly. It's almost like a confession of inadequacy. Like I, I, I couldn't, I can't figure that stuff out. And I, I just know I would be bad at it. Um, so, so the weird thing is, is that when John sort of came to me and said, Hey, you should do a conversation. You should try to have a conversation with that post secret guy. My immediate response was, what is that? And then I went and I found out. And I was, it turned out I was the only person in the universe that didn't know. <laughs> I mean, because like, it's this huge phenomenon. So like, I'm like, I- I'm assuming that everybody on my podcast already knows what Post Secret is. But like, do you, do you have like a, an elevator pitch where you explain what it is? It's a project I started about 15 or 16 years ago where I printed up 3,000 self-addressed postcards with my home address on them and some simple instructions to write down a secret, truthfully, you've never told anyone else before and decorate the postcard artistically and then let it go, mail it to me. And it was just kind of a lark, almost a prank. But early on, secrets really began to start arriving in my mailbox. I was handing them out to strangers in Washington, D.C. And as they arrived, I would scan them and post them on the web. And soon the web and the whole idea went went viral across the country and around the world. And I've been receiving these postcards nonstop now for over a decade, over a million. And more keep coming every day. They follow me to California uh, yeah. And I hope they never stop. And you get like, what, a thousand, two thousand a week? I would say hundreds a week. Uh, it kind of ebbs and flows depending on the release of a book or a media hit on Post Secret, but it's pretty consistent. Yeah. Now, now here's my question is when you gave out those first postcards, what did, did, were you letting people know like, and then this will show up on a blog or were you just saying like, just send them to me because I'll read them? I don't think I really even thought that far in advance. If, if I had, I might not have pursued it. It was an idea that even felt weird to me at the time. I didn't tell my, my friends or neighbors what I was doing. I explained it to my wife that I was soliciting secrets from strangers and she didn't understand it, but she supported me. But I think too, I felt like in my own life, I had this rich interior life that I I didn't always get a chance to share. Maybe little inside jokes or just appreciations during my everyday life or or regrets or hopes. And I thought if I could create a safe, non-judgmental space where other people uh, could feel safe and could know that those special things that they kept privately inside could be honored and shared in in kind of a noble way. Um, It it could really be something special that I'd appreciate. What I didn't see coming was just how popular it became. But, but so when people on those first postcards, people sent them to you and they had no expectation that anyone else would see them beyond you. I think so. Yeah. I had a website address at the bottom. And as they started coming in, that's when I started the website and kind of reflecting them back every Sunday at postsecret.com, the Sunday secrets. So initially there wasn't any expectation 
uh, after a bit, I think people would go to that website and see other people's secrets and get the understanding that, oh, if I mail mine in, there's a chance it could appear on this website too. But I think it was more of just a, a serendipitous connection between strangers who would never meet and kind of in, in a weird way, finding our, our tribe in terms of honoring these these interior lives that we kind of shared and acknowledged, but they weren't really talked about in, in the everyday world. So what I'm curious about, I mean, two th- I mean, I'm curious about a lot of things, but like the first thing is like you told your wife, she didn't get it um, right away. She didn't fully, she was like, okay. <laughs> in some but ways like, she still doesn't get it. <laughs> it's funny. What, my what, wife and daughter, they, they don't even visit the website, which, which I think is pretty healthy. Uh, it's, it's a good grounding for me. I think, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's funny. Like I have these great conversations with people and I'll say to my wife, you know, would you, you know, I, well, I was, and, and I realized like, she doesn't listen to this podcast <laughs> and, um, <laughs> it, it kind of hurts, but it, it kind of makes sense to me. She's like, I hear you a lot. You know, I think too, um, also people listening on the outside could, might find that strange, but for those of us who kind of take risky moves in our lives and, and don't always play it safe, it's actually, in some ways, I think that stability that we know we can always rely upon, no matter what happens, they're going to be there and be that rock and be ballast and connection for us that can give us the confidence to really take the chances that we might not otherwise take. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I was going to ask you about your wife because the one of the photos I saw was of her putting a brick of postcards on top of this huge pile somewhere in your garage or house or somewhere. Yeah. And so I, I thought like, so is she... You know, I, I was like, "How involved is she?" But then, like, where did you where did you meet her? Like, how like wh- how did you get together with your wife? I was working my way through college, and I was a superintendent's assistant on a huge construction site, maybe two hundred apartment buildings being constructed. And as each apartment came online, they'd be rented out, and she was renting them, and I was completing them. And so, through work, we had this connection. Um, and we just, uh, got to know each other. Well, we saw each other all the time. It just, uh, we were drawn to each other. And, and what were you planning to be at that moment? Like you weren't planning to be the post secret guy. Like what were you, what were you headed towards? I think my goals and ambitions were, were really muted. I, I had in some ways a traumatic childhood. My parents were divorced. I saw my best friend fall to his death in, in middle school. Uh, I struggled with mental illness. So I had very modest aspirations. I remember in high school, I took this class called aeronautics, where you learned about the world of aeronautics and becoming a pilot. And you, at the end, we would take our private pilot's license. And we had to write down our our goals for that class. And my go- everybody's goal was to become a pilot or what have you. And my right. goal was to become a ticket agent at an airport. <laughs> I think oh back on that and I go, couldn't I have done something a little more, you know, aimed a little bit higher than that. So I really don't think I had uh, a strong sense that there'd be a place for me in the world. And in some ways too, I think um, my inability, I think to feel comfortable in a, a large group environment or a corporate environment drove me to pursue individual projects independently and, and become an entrepreneur rather than somebody who was playing a smaller role in a larger company. And, and, and you did like when you got out of school, you I, like you were, I, I mean, I remember reading somewhere that you had a little company that you ran. 
Yeah. And I, now and now you're an absentee owner, but like you still have this little company. Right. I start, I was an information broker and I moved to Washington, D.C. because that's where the information is. And I developed a, a network of clients and I, it was a, a, a lucrative position. I, I had this business called Instant Information Systems for 20 years, um, but it was also very monotonous and tedious. And in some ways, I, I thank God that I had a tedious job, a boring job, because it drove me after work and on weekends to pursue these little creative, meaningful art projects for me. And I was just pursuing those little ventures personally, but uh, Post Secret just kind of captured the world's imagination took my life and turned it upside down and sent me on this extraordinary journey. And so you're right. I, I sold instant information systems to the employees who, who were actually doing all the work. So, so you're doing, you're doing a boring job, but you're making a lot of money and you're doing these projects and you and your wife are living your life. You, you, you have your daughter at some point in that process. I guess, I guess the obvious question is like, you know, emotionally, like this is like, were, were all the projects sort of centered around secrets or stuff or, or, or was this a one-off? Was this, was this a project? Do you know what I mean? Like, I'm just trying to think like, what was in your mind yeah. when you handed out those first postcards? It's interesting. The The art projects I worked on previously weren't related to secrets so much as they were related to postcards. I always had this kind of mystical relationship with postcards ever since elementary school, where in the fifth grade, I went to church sleepaway camp for a week for the first time. And going out our house door, my mom gave me three postcards, self-addressed. And she said, if anything interesting happens while you're at camp, be sure to write us and put it in the mail. We'd love to read it. So I grabbed those postcards, got on the bus, and, and went. And a lot of uh, amazing stuff happened at camp. Not always good. But I, I didn't even think of the postcards until the last day. I found them in my, my camping supplies. I quickly wrote some notes on them, uh, put them in the camp mailbox, and then later that day got on the bus to come home. Forgot all about the postcards. But then later that week, I was getting the mail. And I, I received my own postcards and I pulled them out of our, our mailbox and it really gave me this epiphany. I, I got this idea in my head, like, like, was I the same person who wrote these postcards as I was reading them at that moment? And I started thinking, well, what would I put on a postcard if I could mail to my future self or my past self? And so that kind of planted the seed that later in my life emerged in uh, two or three different postcard projects before Post Secret. And each project was, was never meant to be commercial, just little, little art projects that pleased me and, and made me feel yeah. like I, f I had an outlet for this creative desire I had. It's funny that you talk about that because there is something, like the U.S. Postal Service, I remember as a kid, like if you ever really stop and think about the Postal Service, it's an amazing thing like that, that you could put, you know, for 25 cents or whatever it was at the time, you could put an object in an envelope and it would go across the country like, <laughs> and, and, and land right where you so, told it to. Like, 
it's it's kind of an amazing thing. Absolutely. I mean, I think about how extraordinary the post office is in a number of ways. The fact that you can send a parcel, a letter across the country for less than a buck, or how all yeah. these post these postcards, over a million, each one with a secret from an individual eventually pass through this kind of nexus that was my mailbox and the idea that all these postcards were kind of alone at their point of origin, but then came together. And now if you could see them, they're part of this huge collective kind of reminding us that all of our stories feel so independent and isolated, but they're all just really so connected and so, so much part of a whole. Have you ever talked to your mail carrier? Like, <laughs> does your does your mail carrier like look at these things? Because they're right out there. It's yeah, I, I've had good relationships with several of my mail carriers. Uh, probably my favorite, and I, I do have favorites, was uh, Kathy. And Kathy was the the carrier in Germantown when Postseeker got started. And I remember early on. Uh, in the project, asking Kathy if she had a favorite postcard she had delivered in my mailbox, not even knowing if she knew what Post Secret was or what I was doing or why I was getting handfuls of postcards every day. But she said she did. She had a favorite secret she delivered. And she said it was one that read, I used to work at the post office and I used to read everybody's postcards. Are you guys doing that? <laughs> now we know she was. Yes, Kathy actually was. wrote four pages in the latest post secret book and and arguably maybe the best pages. Wow. So so you know what I keep like it's funny because I was talking with my son the other day and he was like, dad, on these conversations, you have to be a little bit rougher. Like you have to like, you have to be a little more conflictual, like maybe argue with somebody once in a while. Cause like, I tend to be this warm, generous guy. Um, I have that vibe. Um, and, uh, and, you know, but I, I was like, what can I, you know, like this, this is a hard concept to like be down on. It's all this non-judgmental stuff. Yeah. But I did, but I did find myself thinking as I was looking at these postcards you know, wondering, I, I heard this comedian the other day, Bo Burnham. I don't know if you ever heard yeah. of him. He, he just put out this movie, Eighth Grade. It's getting great reviews. Yeah. And which, and it sounds like, I mean, based on your, it sounds like based on what you were telling me about your growing up, it might be one that you can relate to um, because it's this, it, and what he, what he ended up saying was, he said, is that he was doing his show and he ended up having all these anxiety attacks, mm. all this performance anxiety, like literally being like cripplingly full of anxiety while on stage. Mm. And as he started being more open and talking about them, all these 14 year old girls in his audience would come up to him after the show and go like, I know exactly how you feel. Mm. Um, and he realized that in our internet world, everybody's, a performer, you know, like your Facebook page is a performance mm. piece. Um, that, that, and, and so these young people are constantly worried, like, will people like this post of mine? Like mm. they're trying, they're, they're, they're literally, they're not, they're not putting stuff out there based on what's real about them. They're, they're, they're sort of fabricating an identity in the hopes that other people will like it. Mm. And, and, and they, and they, they studiously follow which things get a response and which things oh. don't and calibrate that way. Yeah. And I found myself wondering like, okay, post secret. Now 
you know, hundreds of thousands, I don't know how many people every week look at the postcards. And I would think like, as I'm writing my postcard, do I tell you a real secret or do I try to come up with something really clever that I think will get me on the, get me on the blog? Well, I think there's a couple of factors that play into that uh, astute question and kudos to your son for uh, making a real good point about any podcast. Uh, sometimes it's those those tough questions that you avoid asking uh, just because of the, the nature of the conversation that are the, the ones your audience really wants to get to the bottom of. Uh, where can I go with this? I would say that the environment that young people especially – are increasingly finding themselves caught in the middle of is one that emphasizes more and more how others judge you rather than how you see yourself. And that conflict of how you define your identity, I think is at uh, the root of a lot of issues that are emerging in high schools and colleges today. Issues such as uh, depression, but more than that, uh, anxiety and, and yeah. panic attacks. Um, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, I think when people are sharing their stories on those platforms, by the nature of those platforms, as you talk about, it's kind of performance. It's, it's putting on a costume. It's presenting yourself as you want the world to see you on stage. It's maybe even wearing a mask. But I think of Post Secret kind of as an anti-Facebook. And maybe it has to do with uh, the anonymity of it. Maybe it has to do with how uh, pretty much everything on Post Secret is, is trying to be sincere and, and not snarky and honoring people's stories and emphasizing compassion and empathy. Um, but I think when you take the time to buy a postcard, handwrite something, uh, maybe even use artwork to further convey uh, the parts of the secret that you're not even ready to put into words yet. Oh, yeah. Stamp it slows it. you down. Yeah, it and, slows you down. And physically let that postcard go into the mail. I think that process yeah. acts, as you say, as a barrier. So to really go through all that, you, you, you want to be motivated. Um, you can be motivated to uh, tell a story that's put in a book or or shown on the web. But I think for that kind of post-secret postcard motivation, it comes from a desire to really unburden yourself the way other people's have by, by kind of going through the process. So that's my hope. And, and there are certainly uh, secrets that are more sincere with others, but maybe in the selection process too, over 10 years, I'm able to kind of uh, get a sense for those secrets that are coming from, from the heart uh, more than coming from a place of, I just have attention. So have you, I mean, I, I think I, I just, it didn't even occur to me until you were like, oh yeah, you slow them down. And that is the, you know, the danger of that and, and, and the anonymous thing. Although what's funny is, is I was thinking those first 3000 cards you handed out in DC, if you would, if I would have gotten one of those, I would have sent it in because it was a human being that gave it to me. Mm. And I would have thought like, okay, like somebody's actually going to read this, you know? Um, and I guess maybe the, 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 for me, the neatest thing about the blog is that it's a demonstration that there is a sorting out that goes on. 
Mm. And so what that means is like, whether or not you put my thing on the, on the site, I know that it'll get looked at, you know, <laughs> I, I know that, I know that I will have a witness to my thought. Um, well, that's kind of the idea, but, but not everybody feels quite that way about it. I have a postcard on the web this week that, that basically comes from somebody who's a little bit angry and resentful that I continue to sometimes post secrets about peeing in the shower when there are much more significant and meaningful secrets that might be getting ignored. So I, I definitely well, have and, and, my and I, I saw that one. I definitely I, have my I critics saw that in one. the process. But I will say one more point. Me- one more point I just want to make too is it's I found it interesting that coming into the conversation you talked about how you weren't that tech savvy. You were kind of uh, analog in your approach to life. And in some ways, I don't really think of PostSecret as a website about postcards. I think of PostSecret as an art project using this very old traditional form of technology, communication technology, right. the postcard. But I just happened to start it at a time when I was able to share it on the web. And that made all the difference. I did, No, I, that's right. That's right. Because it is an old, the postcard thing. And again, for me, like those people that were complaining about the P postcard, yeah. like that was the weird thing. I saw that and I thought what that woman was, or man or whoever it was, was saying was, hey, why do you keep posting these trivial things. I sent you something that was really deep. Yes. Like, and in a sense, she was like, why'd you pick that one over mine? Yes. Um, Which ironically is what got her on there after all. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You know, not her profound thing, but her complaint. (laughs) Yeah. But, but I thought to myself, she's aware, he's aware that you, you exist. Like they may not know who you are. You're like God in that sense. Like they don't know who you are very well, but you're the sorter. Well, I love that postcard she sent for on so many levels. I I like the humor of it. I like the authenticity of it. The fact that she felt a sense of kind of almost like ownership of the post secret website enough where she felt like she could kind of express how she felt about something. And also to right. the fact that she had participated in a way where she, she had earnestly trusted me with her secret. And even though I'm unable to share them all back, she felt invested. And so I salute that. And also too, I think she brings up a point of the project that I find really meaningful. And that is there are a few things that are illuminated when you go to see the Sunday secrets every Sunday. One of them is every Sunday you will see secrets that in your mind you think are trivial and maybe they are to you, but maybe to the person who's carrying that secret, it has all the weight in the world. And if you can get past that kind of separation, you can come up with this other idea uh, on a parallel track that allows you to recognize, Hey, Maybe some of the secrets I'm hiding from others and myself in my own life aren't really as big a deal as I'm blowing it up to be. And maybe if there's a way I can find the right time and the right person to out myself, maybe if I can just get this thing that's got me out of me, then maybe I'll be able to look at it too and think, you know what? This is trivial. This isn't a big thing because ultimately none of our secrets should be a big deal. Post-secret is about destigmatizing the world, not saying everything's right, everything's okay, but saying that talking about our true feelings and experiences, no matter what they are, it's got to be the first step to coming to resolution, to allowing other people to know they're not alone with their secrets. 
to give people permission so, so to share think, their struggles before those struggles can can turn deadly. So, so, so that's the thing. Like, I know you think you're helping people, um, and you have stories about people saying you helped me. This helped me, but like, I found myself going like, okay, are you helping people? Are you in, like, is this act of of anonymous sharing? Like, do you think like that's the first step? towards a person destigmatizing that secret and becoming more authentic? Or is it a release valve where a person's like, I'm having a hard time holding this in, but like I can share it with this stranger and there that released some of the pressure. And now I can keep my secret for another 20 years and never tell anybody who's really in my life. Yeah. I think all those stories and many, many more post secret is just one channel people can choose to use to let their secret go. There are many others. My, my hope is that by starting with a postcard, it can be the first step in a much longer journey, uh, reconciling with that secret, with that story. But those stories can take us in many different directions. And what's exciting for me is to see how this platform, not anything I'm doing personally, but just enabling this platform of conversation can allow us to... Uh, see ourselves as con- connected to other people in ways that are kind of visceral, that that go beyond just uh, a cerebral understanding of it. And you get that, you get that feeling when you see something you're struggling with uh, articulated on a postcard by a stranger who, from somebody who you'll never meet, but in that moment, you you feel that connection and that sense of union, and knowing that you're not alone with something you might have thought nobody else could understand. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I found myself thinking, even if somebody does concoct a really cool secret, like that, you know, to, and, and puts it on there and, and their story isn't true, like everything I saw in there, I'm going like, whether the person who wrote it, it's true. Like there's somebody out there reading it who's going like, that's exactly how I feel. Oh, like, there's a, there's a lot of approaches to this issue that you're raising, uh, depending on how deep yeah. you want to go. Uh, what you're hinting at, and I agree with, is is that sometimes, you know, you walk into a bookstore and you don't find the book that changes your life in the nonfiction section. You find it in the fiction section. That's possible. And other people yeah. too have told me that when they got a post secret postcard, they kind of challenged themselves. They were like, "Okay, I'm going to come up with a great." post-secret secret. And they they have carte blanche to write down on that postcard whatever they want. It's almost like a Rorschach test. And what can sometimes happen is you think you're making up a secret, but a kernel of that secret, that fantasy that you think you're making up comes from something that's truly inside of you. And more than once I've had people say, I thought I was making something up, but when I saw it on the web, I realized it was a process of me coming out to myself. Yeah. Well, you know, I spent 20 some years as an evangelical Christian preacher. Um, I don't know if you knew that. No. But, uh, but you know, before I, like, yeah, I, I grew up in heavy duty evangelicalism and became what denomination? a missionary. You know, I, it was it was like a, a non-denominational church. My dad was a huge hotshot evangelical leader and who preached in everybody's church and at the, the Methodist Youth Conference one week and the Presbyterians the next week and the Catholics the next week. I mean, he he's kind of a big deal evangelical Christian. So I grew up all around that world. I was asking you because when I was in high school, I was uh, in the Pentecostal religion. Oh, yeah. Okay. In, in a youth group kind of thing? Well, I mean, 
Yeah. I mean, I was, I was hardcore probably going three or four times a week, uh, praying to be filled with the Holy ghost at, at all the altar calls. Yeah. And so, you know, um, and, and, and so I, and it was in high school that I got swept up in this. I just, and, and it just took over my life and, and for 30 years, you know, I, I sort of, my commitment to community building and loving relationships and social justice, like grew and grew and grew. And my ability to believe in a personal God who actually intervened and did anything sort of died the death of a thousand unanswered prayers. And, um, and at the end of the game, when I, when I realized that, like there was nothing left, I couldn't believe it at all anymore. You know, I'm a, I'm a professional Christian at this point, but when it was all over, my commitment to community building and to relationships and to pursuing goodness as a way of life, like that stuff was still there. And so that, that, I mean, for me, this whole humanist thing is all about me trying to figure out how to build a community of people that want to pursue goodness on the other side of faith. Um, but, but when I was in the church, you know, and, and, and preaching sermons in front of thousands of people, you would end up telling a story and, 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 and you weren't exactly lying, but you would take the beginning of one story and the end of another story and you'd sort of meld them together. And, you know, you, you'd, you'd curl out some of the, as you told the story more and more often, you smoothed it out and got the laugh lines in the right places. And in the end, you know, I, I don't know that that story was factually true, but as my dad used to say, if it didn't happen that way, it should have. Um, and, and you'd end up with a sermon illustration and it would still and it would touch people and you realize like what they're hearing like what's what's connecting with them is that is the is the is the universal part of the story and i think it's probably that way with a lot of these secrets that that whatever the person writing them is that they, they connect with people and kind of like ah i know what it feels like to hate your nipples you know <laughs> well, or I to hate some part, part of, of your body it's part of uh, creating a community and a conversation. So I think uh, as you might have been telling that story and it was evolving, the reason it was evolving is because you were listening to the reaction and following yeah. where uh, your people were leading you to go. And what's been surprising for me in my life in this whole journey is how the more I talk and make presentations about post-secret, I do a lot of traveling to college campuses and speaking, at live events. And for the first half of the event, I talk about the project, some extraordinary secrets and stories, how people's lives have been transformed. I share my own secret. And then the second half is, is I invite audience members, sometimes in front of a thousand people to come up to a microphone and share their secret live for the first time. And we kind of have this, this conversation in a way that I think we don't have enough safe spaces in this society where we can have those. And over time, by sharing what's most meaningful about the project to an audience and listening carefully to the stories they reflect back, I feel like I've, I've kind of been led uh, on a spiritual journey myself, uh, coming to understand how sometimes these secrets can represent the, the most pain and humiliation that we experience and we hide it up and it can haunt us. But if we can find a way to work through those stories, those struggles, sometimes that can become our superpower. That can be the gift that we acquire through the struggle 
that allows us to, in some cases, reach back and help those who are still suffering and can't trust anybody else except someone who they know has felt that same pain that they're going through in the moment. Yeah. You know, I, I, I remember reading about this therapist who, when he couldn't get people to talk to him, would share something about his own life that if it became commonly known would undermine or destroy his career. Mm. He would just sort of make himself vulnerable to them. And, and, and he, you know, I'm not sure that's ethical, you know, um, but he said it always worked. Um, well, parents that, will sometimes ask me, Frank, a million people have told you their secret. How can I get my son or daughter to open me, open up with me and, and really be, have that connection, a deeper relationship. And I, I always say the same thing. I say, if you want your uh, child to be straight and true and trust you with what they're really struggling with, you have to take that step first and tell them you have to put one of your secrets yeah. because, you know, secrets are the currency of intimacy. And it's, 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 you're not going to get one back unless you open up your heart and, and give something first. Yeah. yeah. And I was talking with a friend the other day and he was talking about how his kid was really afraid of monsters in the closet and, and lots of other things. And, you know, this guy's, he's a big strapping guy, you know, it just doesn't look like he'd be afraid of anything. And I said, you know, do you have any, can you relate to that at all? And he said, oh yeah. He said, when I was a kid, I, you know, I was really afraid of things that go bump in the night. And I said, well, have you ever told your son that? Mm. And, he, and he was like, nah, you know, like it, it never occurred to me. I said, you know, like he, I'm sure he looks at you as like, the rock of Gibraltar, like it'll mean a lot to him if you tell him that you've been there. And, uh, and yeah, I think that, I think that is, that is this whole kind of thing. I, I guess what I'm wondering is like, do you, it, it seems like, I, I guess what I'm wondering is, is do you think that secrets are ever a good thing that people should keep? Like, do do are you just, do you have like a, a philosophy that says like secrets are bad, we should get them out there? Or do you go like, nah, sometimes it's probably a good thing for somebody to keep their secret? Well, it's, it's definitely good for business if people keep sharing their secrets through post-secret. But I, I will say, <laughs> uh, if you ask me what my real philosophy is, I don't think um, we should share all of our secrets with everyone. I think sometimes we keep secrets for very important reasons that can protect someone or keep someone from being hurt. So... I, I think in most cases, it's probably healthy to share more of our secrets than we're comfortable with, with the right people in appropriate ways. But honestly, I, I still have, you know, secrets I keep from my daughter or my wife um, because I think it's it's actually healthy. So, yeah, that's my position. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I read this book by Esther Perel recently, and she talked about how within a marriage – there has to be some sexual privacy um, that sometimes you, you know, that, that, that it's not a matter of like, you're not, you're not zealously keeping secrets in order to control the other person, but that there are some things that you just, we nurture in ourselves and, and they create a little bit of mystery. Um, and, uh, and they also give us some privacy and a space to call our own. And I guess when, when you were a kid, did you have, did you, I mean, it sounds like it was very difficult, like, but did you have anybody who was your keeper of secrets? Was there anybody for you to go to as a little kid 
that you could share your stuff with? No, no, I, I don't feel that way. Uh, in my talk, I talk about how uh, my mother uh, was the very first person who I felt like I had to keep secrets from because I, there were some things that I just would, <laughs> there's no way I could, I could trust with her as uh, a kid growing up in her household. So that kind of set me on a course where I was constantly drawing a line between what I would reveal and what I would conceal. And yeah, maybe, maybe that sparked my fascination with secrets in the first place, where growing up in that household, I realized that our family kept secrets from others. And then later in life, uh, looking back on that household, I realized that there were, there were family secrets that were kept from me. And my relationship with secrets is still kind of complex and certainly not simple. I think there's a, a real connection between the sacredness of secrets and, and who you can trust them with and when. And there's certainly been cases where I've told my secrets to the wrong person. And, and I, I, there were a lot of things I didn't tell my parents growing up. Uh, my father uh, and stepmother were visiting with us uh, for the past couple of days. And two days ago, well, they were here for three days. Two days ago, we went to the post-secret art exhibit in San Diego and looked at the postcards on display. And I pointed out one of the postcards in the exhibit that was mine. And it was a childhood humiliation that happened when I was a boy. And afterwards, my father told me that he didn't realize that it happened and wished he could have protected me from it. And for me, the power of the secret uh, was gone. It, it had no weight on me at all. So hearing those things from my father was, was kind, but it, it didn't have an unlocking effect that I think sometimes can happen when there's a real uh, release of something that, that you're being burdened by. But even the idea of respecting people's secrets and their privacy is alive in my life. Uh, last night, um, my, my father and stepmother were in our guest bedroom. And my father has a, a hearing aid, so they're, they're likely to talk a little bit loud. And I, I knocked on the door and uh, just said, hey, just so you guys know, we, we can hear you out here. And, we you can know, hear you. <laughs> nothing, nothing embarrassing, but just keep that in mind as you guys are communicating that sometimes we can, we can overhear you and, and maybe at other family members' houses too, you should keep that in mind as, as you're speaking louder and louder privately. So there's, there, I think there's you know, certainly respect and walls that, that, and compartments that are important in that. But like I said earlier, I think in many ways, we are, are far too defensive than we need to be uh, with the people who care about us. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's funny, like, because I'm a big person into authenticity and, you know, people sort of, like, I let it all hang out. But I realized that as a kid growing up, um, I was, I, you know, I grew up in a very safe space. Like, like it's funny because my, my, my parents, my dad was this evangelical Christian guy, but he never, I, I have a lot of friends who grew up in, in kind of Pentecostal or evangelical worlds that, boy, you want to talk about needing to keep secrets. I mean, you couldn't even be honest about what you really believed. You know, like, I, I mean, I have lots of minister friends who don't believe in God and can't tell anybody. Mm. Um, in, in their real world. Like there's just a tremendous amount of pain around the God stuff and secrecy. Mm. Um, but strangely enough, the world I grew up in 
I was really allowed to process my way through the whole thing. Um, and I think sometimes when we see these people and we admire how authentic we are, they are, and we like and their their courage and their boldness. I think in some ways that courage or boldness is the gift that the people around them gave them. Oh, you, you know um, that sometimes I think we reproach ourselves for being secretive or anxious or afraid to be our real selves or hiding behind masks. And we sort of go like, yeah, what's wrong with me? Why am I so uptight this way? And I go like, yeah, I don't think that it's anybody's, I don't think that quality in a person is something that they muster up from within. I think that's something that we we either give to children growing up or we don't give to them. One of the secrets in the second post-secret book is mine. And the book is basically for high school students and college students who might feel without direction or, or anxious about their place in the world. It's kind of the book I wish I had had when I was younger. And the secret that I wrote on uh, a catcher in the rye book cover and mailed to myself uh, said, if you feel like you're going insane and you're trapped in a dysfunctional environment, you're not crazy. And that's the message that I needed to hear. And I kind of see that reflected at live post-secret events today. At these live events on college campuses, I try again to share the message I needed to hear when I was young and felt anxious and isolated and like an imposter. And during the second half of these events, when students are sharing their secrets live at the mic, it, it takes me a little bit to create that space to, to set all the social cues so that first person feels comfortable coming up to a microphone and trusting his friends and teachers and staff and me uh, to tell their truth for the first time. But I can tell you, as, as soon as they finish that secret, uh, the response of the audience is so receptive and warm and supportive that no matter how long it took for that first person to come to the mic, after that first person, the line uh, everybody wants 12, a piece. 14, everybody 20 wants people. That. Because they yeah. realize it's like you have permission. This is a safe space. We're going to support you. We're not going to judge you. And that makes all the difference in the world in terms of sharing your heart and being intimate with a person or a community. Yeah. And, and it's, you know, I mean, I don't want to slag on God or the God idea, but I got to tell you, like, you know, when you were talking about Pentecostal church as a teenager, I can't imagine a worse place to be because there was this person who knew all your secrets and judged the hell out of them, you know, you know, and, and so, the, and, and, and you didn't get that feedback. Like, that you're talking about that sort of makes a person go like, you're safe here. It's okay. I mean, I like there were such weird mixed messages that I remember as a high school guy, you know, like the idea that God knew my lustful thoughts and how many times I had masturbated that week was just <laughs> awful for me, you know, just awful. Right. Um, and, and so, you know, what, what's interesting is, is that I, I watched your, um, your Ted talk. And uh, that I, I don't even want to talk about how that must have changed your life, like doing that and getting that kind of, you know, exposure. But I read an article of somebody 
who was commenting on that TED Talk. And they were talking about it as a sort of a tour de force of charisma and warmth. And I felt that way when I was watching it, that, you know, the ability to create a safe space and a sense of authenticity for a thousand people, that that's a really rare ability. And I, it's a joy to me that you're using it to help college kids who are the people I love the most in the world and worry about the most in the world. Um, I, it makes me thrilled to do that, but I, I find myself sort of going like, not everybody can do that, but I think that almost everybody could make a safe space over a a, a coffee over 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 a coffee table. You know, I think I think like one on one. That's where I feel like we got to get better at creating safety and saying, you know what, you, you could tell me anything and it'll be okay. Um, and, and 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 like you say, putting something out there. To, to sort of demonstrate, like, I'm going to trust you with this. Maybe you could trust me with something. Um, I guess like I, I, what I'm thinking is what you're doing on this macro scale with the project. And when you speak even more so, I feel like is what, is what a lot of us need to be doing in our interpersonal relationships. Yeah, I think one of the things that Post Secret uh, shines light upon is how there are all these extraordinary stories of heroism and pain happening the, in the lives of people around us all the time. We just can't see it. It's invisible to us. And if we can look inwardly and acknowledge some of the secrets we might be keeping from others and from ourselves, and even looking deeper, trying to find the courage to find the secrets beneath the secrets, that's the first step in, in self-acceptance and finding that confidence where you can accept who you are and share that with others. And sometimes that journey starts with, with shattered feelings and pain and frustration. I remember the struggle I had in the Pentecostal church where in order to be considered accepted and saved and part of the community, you had to show evidence of speaking in tongue tongues of, of speaking another language at, at the altar. And for over a year, I prayed for that gift of the Holy Ghost to speak in tongues, and it never came. And for a, a year, I was kind of an outsider who wanted to be an insider. And in some ways, it was a long journey of religious failure. But through Post Secret, I can see how that connects with that pain. And in some way, I, I like to think of this project where uh, many people are speaking in many voices and in many languages through this project, through this platform. It's coming in and going back out in like a clearinghouse sort of way. I like to think of that as kind of being my way of finding that, that connection and that confirmation of spirituality. Yeah. Well, that's nice. That's, I mean, that's a nice way to think of it because I, yeah, it's funny. I, I just read this book, When I Spoke in Tongues, written by this woman who grew up in the Pentecostal church. And and she describes it in really vivid detail, that experience of desperately wanting the gift, you know, wanting wanting the charism to be able to speak in tongues. And it was all about wanting to feel part of the group mm. and wanting to feel fully validated as, as a true believer and a true member. And- um uh, you know, I, I think there are, you know, there are a lot of, when it was funny when I, when I was working at USC, especially I used to take kids out to coffee 
and I would just ask them questions um, about their relationships or about growing up. And, and uh, at the end of it, a lot of times they would tell me stuff and they would say, I've never told anybody that before. And I would say, why not? And they would say, well, nobody ever asked. You know, that, that there are a lot of people out there carrying stuff inside of them, desperate to share that burden, desperate to tell somebody. And, and nobody asks. And, uh, and particularly, you know, when I'm when around church, church people, there's a, a real sense in which there are a lot of things that it's really scary to, to share, especially when people are in the process of losing their faith. It's very, it's very difficult to know who you can and can't tell um, what's happening with your faith. Um, yeah, so I, I, you know, I don't even know where I was going with that. Well, I'm sometimes just, it, it is it just, easier I, to, to share a secret with a stranger on a train or somebody you're sitting next to on an airplane than somebody who is part of your community or your religion or family where it's going to affect that relationship or how they see you over time. And so Post Secret tries to honor that sense of anonymity, but there's ways to kind of get that in other places too. I was a volunteer on a suicide prevention hotline before Post Secret even started, kind of listening to people's deepest secrets at 2 a.m. and 3 a.m. and understanding that those secrets existed. And and maybe that experience uh, encouraged me in a, in a way beneath my awareness to know that if I started this other project that that if I, if I created the space, the secrets would come because they were out there. They're always out there. And, and you found a way to connect this to the suicide thing, right? Like the, like the one, there's no ads on your site, but there is this connection to the suicide hotline stuff. Yeah, the, the post-secret community has voluntarily created the most complete and comprehensive database of suicide prevention hotlines and text lines in the world. It's on a, it's a wiki. Uh, the community has raised over a million dollars for suicide prevention, and they continue to do good works in that area. I, I do a lot of speaking with Active Minds, who has chapters on over 400 college campuses, and it's a, a mental wellness group pretty much run by young people that just identifies these simple practices and design hacks that can... Um, that can offer students hope and help for themselves and to offer it for others in a way, again, that I wish I was more available when I was on campus. There seems to be this awakening of campus leaders and administrators understanding the need that students have when they're leaving home for the first time, when they're struggling with rigorous academic standards when they're at a point in their life when sometimes these mental illnesses first start to show signs and signals, uh, there needs to be more support. And if there's not, uh, we're going to continue to have over a thousand suicides on college campuses every year. And I think if we can be outraged about that and motivated to do something about it, we can change it. So this active minds thing, I have never heard of this. Um, and is it, I mean, do they have like, is it a club on a campus that kids join or is it like, is it a resource clearinghouse where, where kids find these hacks or these ways of, of, of dealing with some mental, mental wellness issues? Yeah, it's an evidence-based organization on uh, 47 of the 50 states 
and, and multiple chapters and clubs in, in different states that offers programs and practices that make a real difference. I'll give you a couple. These aren't expensive programs. They're basically just design hacks. So, for example, most colleges and universities have a crisis or suicide hotline for students, but the whole crux is does the student have access to that resource at the moment they need it at that crucible in their life and what active minds has championed is putting the crisis intervention hotline on the back of every student id so that's a simple idea doesn't cost anymore definitely saves lives another program they have is send silence packing where they have a collection of over of over a thousand student backpacks each one with a laminated story of a student who took his or her own life. And these backpacks are taken from campus to campus across the U.S., even up into Canada. And they're laid out on the, the, the campus quad or the field where students are walking between classes. So just in a passive way, students can stumble across this very visual representation of the struggles other students are, are having and maybe this, the struggles they're having in a way that allows that conversation to get started and, and not be so taboo. So it, what's, what's wonderful are these programs are, are working right now and this organization is kind of grassroots up. So it's not about the older generations talking about traditional approaches to mental wellness. It's about young people taking ownership of this issue that's affecting them and their peers and coming up with new ways and a new conversation to make things better. Yeah, it, it is amazing though, isn't it? When you're on the campuses to realize the burdens that so many kids are under and the lack of connection that so many of them feel. To other, you know, like they're, they're there are, are surrounded by all these students. And so many of them will say like, I have a network of a hundred people on my Facebook page or whatever. And I don't feel like there's anybody who really knows me here. These, and so, these struggles and conditions are so tangible and so real and, and, but they're hidden. Um, they're there, but they're hidden. I, I was speaking at MIT about imposter syndrome, about this idea how students and professionals, all of us in some way, feel like we're not qualified for the position that we're in or like we haven't earned what we've attained. And so speaking at MIT, there was a class of about 60 or 70 students. And I said, well, how many of you here right now believe that you are in the upper 50% academically of students here on campus at MIT. Now keep in mind, th these are like the, the 1% of the 1% coming from the US and the globe. Sitting in this classroom, I got maybe four or five people who raised their hands. Statistically, at least 30 or 35 of them would have to be in the upper half, but they didn't see themselves that way. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if you read that book, Excellent Sheep, which was about kids at these elite institutions. No. And how they they've been trained to fulfill the tasks and to write the papers and to do the extracurriculars and, and and yet they haven't been given almost any ability to to figure out why they're doing it. Oh. And so they're excellent sheep. They're they're incredibly capable, but they don't they haven't really been given the space to figure out like what do I care about? Why? How does this connect with me? What? Why am I doing it? I was talking to a and niece that, and nephew yesterday who are curious about becoming writers and publishing a book. 
And I said, one of my big struggles was in high school. Here I was, a C student in English class in high school. You would never think a C student would be the person who would have a best-selling book published. But I, I realized later on in life, really, that's a blessing. Uh, the A students and above might be great at, as you're getting to, kind of regurgitating back the standard rules and presenting exactly what is expected. But the kind of books that really make an impact on the world are the ones that aren't maybe, you know, don't have all the words spelled precisely correct or in the right order, but they express this idea that's unusual, that's singular, something different. What's novel is what can set the world on fire. So if, if, if we have any listeners right now who were a C student in English class, that is uh, permission to come up with that idea that's different from what anybody else is saying and find the best way to express it and don't give up on it. Post-secret, when I had it, felt like this crazy idea. And it was a crazy idea, but I had crazy faith in it. And I think all of us have something like that that they can pursue in a passionate way that doesn't make sense to, to maybe anybody else in their life but them. And if, if you have something like that, you pursue it, and you're lucky enough to, to find that community who responds to it, uh, it's a very gratifying place to be. And uh, it, it, it can yeah, take and I, but I mean, and I got to be honest with you, like, yeah. if anybody's out there listening... Don't kid yourself. You're, whatever your best idea is, you're probably not going to get you a TED Talk and a million views. Um, but I will tell you this, that even if Post Secret had just been those 3,000 postcards and 3,000 people had sent their stuff in and you had looked at them and, 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 and curated them the way you did, like it would have still – like each of those stories that you've told, like if I took away all the other ones – are kind of worthwhile. And if, if, if a person who listens does something and they make space for just one person to feel safe for just one person to tell their story, I go like, that can, you know, that can, that's the life that can change a life that can move somebody into a much better space. I, I, you know, in some ways I, I think what, what, what excites me the most about what you're doing is what's happening at those live events where a person actually, you know, experiences the human connection of people hearing them and going like, it's okay that you shared that. It, it, the world didn't end when you shared that, you know, it, people responded when you shared that. And I, I just feel like that's the big, if there's anything that I want people to kind of hear in this is that everybody's running around with these secrets and you found a way at a long distance through a postcard project to let some people let them out, but that there are a lot of people that also need to let them out in a, in a face-to-face way. And I think, I feel like even if you're, even if you don't do anything dazzling to the rest of the world, as, as you've done, I feel like everybody can do something that's dazzling to the person who actually needs to be heard. Well said. Well, the, you know, the, the intent is so important. Pre- I, you, can you tell I used to be a preacher? Can you, uh, can you tell that? I, I didn't mean to. The intent is so critical. And the, the postcard projects I worked on before Post Secret were very meaningful for me too, even knowing that it was kind of an audience of, of one or a handful. And if, if it's one thing I've discovered through Post Secret, it's, it's that, you know, for me anyways, uh, the, the best way to impact the world is not through 
uh, me or my story, but creating this space that honors other people's stories and finding a way to create this conversation and follow where it goes. So I think by, by honoring other people's stories, that's a way that we can create a space for others to share and unburden themselves and create this, this story of all of us that lightens our load. It maybe entertains, but it also enriches. Yeah. Yeah. If you want to humanize other people, you have to make space for them. And like, that's it. Like, like we could have a whole, we will stop now, but like we could have this whole conversation on what is it, what are the, what are the elements of a safe space and how do we make that for another person? Um, but I think like you've illustrated the, the most important one throughout the whole conversation and through, you know, like, is this idea of actually expressing to the other person, I'd like to hear what you have to say. Like, if you'll, if you'll, if you'll write it, I'll read it. If you'll say it, I'll listen to it. Like, I think the, you know, that, that it's not the only thing that goes into creating a safe space. But boy, just being interested in another person's story is a big part of this, is a big part of the process. Yeah, I, th I think that's a starting point. I don't think it's always sufficient. I, I think you have no. to have a space. You have to be vulnerable yourself. You have to kind of take the leadership and in stepping into that relationship. Um, and sometimes you have to do it gradually. Like, you know, sometimes it, it, you, you, put, you put forth something and you elicit a little something and then you honor that and you're, you, tr you, you, you honor that person's trust and you, you guard their, their secret or, or you, you know that you, you you use that information judiciously with them, and then they can trust you with a little bit more and a little bit more. Like it's not always all at once. Yeah, it almost sounds like building up that rapport on the suicide prevention hotline that you have to do with every call before you really get to the meat of it. Yeah. So so okay. So the suicide thing, like I I didn't mean to didn't mean to brush over that. I'm just I, it's like if it like what's where do I go if I want to know where there's every suicide hotline. That I could use. You can just go to the Post Secret website, just Google Post Secret. And then at the bottom of the page, there's a link to it all the time. Um, it's, it's a wiki uh, and you, it's, that's all keyword searchable by uh, condition, location, um, communities. So you can find the one that's appropriate for you. The idea is that you never want to feel like uh, there isn't anything available because that's kind of a, a lie we sometimes tell ourselves when we're depressed or we feel down. But there's always hope. There's always help. There are always people dedicated to, to helping and serving. The issue is that we just need to make those, those conduits more effective. We need to do a better job of connecting the people with the need. Hey, this is a stupid question, but you'll know the answer to it. Like, do those suicide hotlines, like, do they have like a waiting list of people that want to be on the other end or do they struggle to find volunteers? They definitely struggle to find volunteers. And sometimes the, the time that people volunteers is shorter than they'd like. I will say one of the reasons I started volunteering on the line is because I was struggling uh, with, with depression and isolation in college. And I, I joined this hotline. I went through three weeks of training. And when I started volunteering, I met other volunteers who were just really good-hearted people. And so if you want to do good, but if you also want to put yourself in a community of compassionate, empathetic, cool people, uh, a volunteer hotline or text line is a great way to get started. And in today's with tech, today's technology, 
you can operate either one remotely from your home. So it's much different than when I had to drive 20 minutes there and back to volunteer for myself. Yeah. Although you got to meet people in a way that I, you know, sometimes, sometimes I, I, I'm one of the things like sometimes I feel bad that everything is so convenient because everybody's sort of living their lives out of their computer. And I'm like, you still got to go to a meeting. You still got to go meet somebody. You got to like have a cup of coffee, go, get, go have lunch together. I just want people to spend more time together. But, but, but it sounds like what you're saying is, is like, if you get involved in, if somebody got involved in that, they would actually find themselves interacting with a really nice group of people. Oh, the training is phenomenal. I, I learned tools in those three weeks of training with others that are still serving me and my friends and family. And I still apply with post secret, just simple lessons like, you know, sometimes counterintuitive as, as a guy, when I hear a problem, I want to try and solve it. I want to try and create, give, give a solution to the person to get through it. But the training would teach us that, no, what's first most important is to just speak with an empathetic voice, care about the person, listen actively, allow them to articulate everything they're feeling. Don't try and solve the problem. Just give them the space to lay it out. Because in many cases, people struggling with these issues, once they have somebody who allows them to find the space to get it all out and verbalize it, they can kind of find their own solution. They, they know what to do. They just need to get past that obstacle. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I, I, on the bottom of my emails, like, you know, you sort of describe yourself and like, I'm, you know, I counsel people. So I put them a counselor and, a, and I'm a chaplain. And then I always put this thing that I'm a community builder. Um, cause I actually do, I bring people together and, you know, create like little sort of like churches for people who don't believe in God. Um, but it strikes me that like there, and, and, and people know what a community builder is. Like they've heard of that. Um, but like it, as I'm listening to you, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, oh, Frank, he's a space maker. Like, you know, like, like in a sense, post secret, like you've made a space, you made a safe space for people. And then at these live events, you know, you make a safe space for people. And, you know, you're saying like oh, in a suicide hotline, the important thing is to have the skills to kind of create this space um, for a person who calls. And I go like, that's its own thing, being a space maker. And like in the same way that community building, you have like there's a whole set of skills that you develop to do that. And there are lessons to be learned and training to be had. Um, I just really appreciate talking to you because I feel like you're one of the more thoughtful space makers um, <laughs> that I've ever encountered. What a nice and way I'm to just, put it. Like, well, you know, Post Secret all yeah. starts with the postcard and the postcard is giving somebody permission for that space. When yeah. I when I was handing them out on the streets of Washington, D.C. at night, I knew that somebody might take one and not give it a second thought, maybe put it in their purse, shove it in their pocket. But that space stayed with them. It was a placeholder for their secret. It was acknowledging that they had a secret. And here's this six inch by four inch rectangle waiting for waiting to receive it. And at post-secret live events, I, I think of what I do there as kind of the same thing I do on the web, creating this safe, non-judgmental place where people can share things for the first time. And believe me, when I had this idea that I was going to try and ask people to tell their secrets at the microphone for the first time, it sounds simple. Hey, step up and share your secret. Nobody's going to do that. I had to go through months and really years of trial and error, finding the, the best way to step-by-step 
set all the social cues in a way for that first first person to find the confidence to get up and talk about something they never thought they were going to share when they when they sat down on that seat earlier in the night. That's not an easy thing to do, but it is about creating a space where people can share. Yeah, and it's this a is craft, a rare thing. I, I tell today. people it's a craft. You, you like, yeah, you didn't just you just pull that out of your ear. Like you do it in an event, it doesn't work so well, you, but you try it a different way. Like it's it's you know this business of loving other people. It isn't this thing that necessarily comes naturally. Um, maybe the care comes naturally, but the figuring out how to express it and communicate it and create a space around it where, where it can happen, that's a craft, man. That, that takes time and energy and training and, and, and practice. And, uh, you know, doctors are practicing medicine and I'm, I'm practicing community building and you got to practice people loving and you got to practice space making. And, and so, yeah, this is, this is really like, this is good for me to hear because I tend to like, I'm one of those Maslow guys who's like, if the only hammer you, if the only tool you have is a hammer, every problem begins to look like a nail and I know how to build community. And a lot of times when I see college kids or I see things like, I think that the only way to help them is to build a community or a group for them. Cause that's what I know how to mm. do. And it's really helpful for me to hear somebody who's clearly wired up fairly differently than I am with a very different background and has found a different way um, to address that same pain and that same need. And uh, so it's, it's like, I don't know if it'll help anybody else, but it's been really good for me to talk with you. I really appreciate oh, it. Oh, I've enjoyed it too. And it's interesting how the conversation comes back full circle with you talking about creating the spaces in the same way earlier where you were not digital. You weren't in the virtual world. You were in the real world, wanting to meet with real people and have real experiences. And I know part of, I think, my draw to Pentecostalism in high school was at those events, there was real emotion. People were not holding back. They were expressing themselves in ways I'd never seen in everyday life. And I think if, if, if I had to connect a post-secret live event to something I, I'd experienced in the past, it would be a revival meeting and the idea of release yeah. and support and transformation. Confession. Yeah. Confession and, 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 and forgiveness or, or, or at least acceptance. Yeah. Yeah. It's all there. Hey, just, it's just, I mean, like I'll cut off the podcast and stuff. But like, here's a curious question for you. Did you ever hear that this American life episode where they were, where the guy set up an answering machine and it was, it just said, call this number and you can confess anything. Apology people line, just yeah. Call and, yeah, that was it, the apology line. Did you, did you hear yeah, that episode? Yeah. It's it's not the same thing, but it's it's not it's not completely different. Well, here's different the funny either. thing, Bart. I mean, that's one example, but I've seen dozens and dozens of examples of individuals pursuing their own quirky interest and being dedicated to it and and creating it with integrity and following it through step by step and digging deeper and deeper and listening as they were moving forward. And we all kind of come to the same place. I watched a TED talk of a woman yesterday who is a performer and she gives house concerts. And she was responding to people at house concerts coming up to her and telling her their feelings and confessions after her performances. And so she invited her community to write messages on paper, take a video of them holding them up, 
And they all did it, dozens of them. And then she created this music video where she's talking about sharing feelings and telling stories and having the courage to stand up as she's showing these people basically uh, revealing their confession for the first time. And just listening to her talk about that experience and the idea of connecting and not feeling isolated and honoring your story and honoring other people's stories. It's the same message that I got to in the end. And I've seen it again and again and again in different ways. So I think sometimes you, you follow that, that special, unique voice in your heart and in your mind, and it leads us all to the same spiritual place. Yeah, you know, I think a good evolutionary biologist would say that we are literally hardwired for connection. That that's like it's what it's it's how we live, it's how we survive, it's how we got this far. And so that that urge to connect and I think to connect authentically is pretty uh, universal. And uh we we've created a whole bunch of social stuff to to quell it, to 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 repress it, to push it away, but like it just keeps bubbling up. It's a push-pull because it it's not up. easy, but we still have to keep finding those those fellow travelers who are able to find that special ability to make it happen. And I think we see that in, in artists and leaders in every generation. Yeah. This is great. Thank you, Frank. This was It was great talking to you. Thanks, man. Thanks for the opportunity. Okay, so that was me and Frank talking about secrets and I really, it's no secret that I like that guy. And I would encourage you to check out Post Secret. I've started to check it out each Sunday and find it to be a brief but lovely experience. Um, And I promised you an Ingersoll quote and I actually picked one that I think is very apt for this moment in our nation. Because I, you know, this whole thing the last few weeks with the president, which isn't just the last few weeks, but late, you know, when he attacked LeBron James, and I thought, I thought, really? Because I mean, you might not like LeBron James as a basketball player. You might not like the way he plays the game. But my gosh, as a human being, is there anybody who's kind of made more of themselves out of really difficult background and, and is just giving back in every kind of way and being a role model and an example of goodness? Um, I mean, I'm sure he's got some dark secrets somewhere, but... But, but what's out there is so beautiful. And and when this whole thing with the president attacking him came up, I just thought it's it's a classic example of how right now in our country, if somebody says something about what you're doing or about your ideas or about the work you're doing, how people, they, they can't seem to listen to anybody who isn't in full agreement with everything that they're doing. It, it just goes, it goes, it goes bad. It goes south bad and fast. And the Ingersoll quote that I've got for you, because um, I, I tend to think, oh, it's never been like this before. And evidently it has, because Ingersoll more than 100 years ago said, anger is the wind which blows out the lamp of the mind. Anger is the wind that blows out the lamp of the mind. And I thought that's what goes on here, is that people get so angry at the person who criticizes them or who criticizes their idea that they don't listen to what the person's saying or what their idea is. They just get angry at the person and they attack the person. And I thought, you know what? I'm prone to this too. And I need to be really careful to guard the lamp of my mind 
against my anger to, to, to stop myself and think, okay, what's the person saying? What's really going on here? And respond to the idea and respond to the critique, but don't attack the person delivering it. Don't let my anger make me ignorant, make me stupid. And, uh, yeah, so that's, that, that's my closing thought for you. Don't let your anger make you stupid. And, uh, and I'll see you next time. I hope this was good for you. It was great for me. Um, and I'll see you next time on Humanize Me. For more on BART, go to bartcampolo.org. To leave a question in your own voice to be used in future shows, call the Humanize Me Q-Line at 424-291-2092. That's 424-291-2092. Humanize Me is a production of Jax Media. Hey, you could be larger than life.